Right. Good morning, everyone. Um, so I'm Heath, and before I get started, I want to introduce myself a little bit for those who don't know me yet. Um, I've been a part of this church family for a little over three years now. Before God led me here, the previous seven years, uh, I'd been trying to go to Central Asia as a missionary. After multiple closed doors and not having a close church family to run with, I came here broken and isolated. Yet God has brought so much healing in the past three years that I am not the person I was before. Uh, God has saved me, and one of his greatest means in accomplishing this work in my life has been this church. Um, everyone needs a family and a tribe to run with. And because of the guardrails that John and Nicole have put in place and maintained to keep a culture of vulnerability, accountability, grace, hunger, humility, honor, and joy... I have found my home here. John is in California this week with some of our leaders for the first week of classes. He has felt the need to go back to school so that he can better handle the Word of God and to lead us well. The foundation of our faith rests on the Bible, and we must be under the whole counsel of Scripture, not just the parts we like. Um, and those who lead must be able to properly interpret the Scripture and to teach the rest of us so that we are not led astray by the winds of culture or our own desires. John loves this church so much that he's willing to sacrifice much of his time this year to be better equipped to preach and teach the word and to stand firm against anything that is coming against us and against the gospel of Jesus. Yet his love for Jesus is greater, and he knows that he will give an account for how he led, and therefore he's taking steps to grow in this area. So, uh, yeah, be praying for him this year because he, he wants to lead us well and is growing. Um, when John first approached me about preaching, we had thought we'd be further along in Acts. But this is actually God's providence uh, because one of my strengths is applying history to today, which is Stephen's message, and because one of the subjects that is dearest to my heart and has been part of my training when I was preparing to be a missionary is a perseverance of believers under persecution, especially martyrdom, which is how Acts 7 ends. Um, and because it's so dear to my heart, most of the time I'm just going to be reading off the script. So, uh, yeah, that way I can stay on, on focus. Um, as we follow Jesus, there are three stages that we move through where we are called deeper and higher in our commitment to him. There's the taste and see phase, the come and follow phase, and the come-and-die phase. Today's message is a come-and-die type of message, one to challenge your faith, but also one to increase your faith. If we are to be faithful with the Bible, we must teach and preach both what is pleasant and encouraging and also what is challenging and hard to hear and accept. Yet we must accept what has been written if we are faithful followers of Jesus. In Luke nine twenty-three through 24 Jesus says that if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Let God speak into your life today through this message, but also file away in your memory, because just as we will see later, Jesus warns us in advance of what is to come. Not to cause us to be filled with fear and anxiety about what could happen, but, but to strengthen us 
so that when persecution comes, we will not fall away, but remember that God is in control and that we can trust him with our life and with our death. In Acts 7, we will look at Israel's hardness of heart, God's use of suffering in the lives of his servants, and Stephen's murder with some implications for standing for truth and taking the gospel to those who don't know God. All right, Acts 7. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God, gave him, God, God had him move into this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said, said God. And after that, they will come and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there for the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in a tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power and words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them be being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance on the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. 
On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look, but the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet. For the place which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? Is a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who in this congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who is with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him. And in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the hosts of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. I will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is a footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and covered their ears, and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Our first focus is to consider the hardness of heart. We will look at Israel's history and how they are continually hardening their hearts, the reasons that led to the hardness, and some takeaways for us to test ourselves so our hearts don't grow hard. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, once they had arrived at Sinai, God gave them the Ten Commandments. Then Moses went to meet with God on the mountain for 40 days. But the Israelites in that time, which was less than 40 days, had turned away and served an idol that they had made. The next 40 years, they were constantly rebelling against God, and God continued to show mercy, yet caused the entire generation to die before entering into the promised land. As they were preparing to enter the promised land, Moses delivered the message that we have in the book of Deuteronomy to the people. And it is Deuteronomy that gives us the lens to see the rest of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10.16 says to circumcise your heart and stiffen your necks no longer. And Deuteronomy 12.8 says that you shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Yet Israel continued to refuse to obey these. After Deuteronomy, Joshua came, and then after Joshua came the time of the judges. And the key verse in Judges is Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is exactly what Moses warned them not to do. The theme in Judges was that Israel was following other gods, and God gave them over to destruction by their enemies until they cried out, and then God would send a deliverer. And this happened time and time again. Uh, finally, they decided they wanted a king. And in 1 Samuel 8, 7 through 8, and 10, 19, Israel formerly, formally rejects God from being their king by asking for a king like the other nations around them. 1 Samuel 8, 7 through 8 says, The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they, have, in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. But God, he's merciful. And in 1 Samuel twelve fourteen through 15, and then verse 25, God gives guidelines for success as a people under a king. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, as it was against your fathers. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament and First and Second Kings, and the prophets, we know that Israel continued to rebel against God, 
because the majority of the kings they had were not good kings who followed God. Uh, and because of what he says in First Samuel, we know that that's because the people were not following God. Um, they were eventually sent into exile into Assyria and Babylon. Israel did learn from the exile, and by the time of Jesus, the religious leaders were attempting to keep the law very rigorously, yet their hearts were far from God. They still had not circumcised their hearts, as is written in Deuteronomy. They had religious form and rituals, but were not in right relationship with the Father. Jesus rebukes them in Matthew 21, 33 through 44, which is a parable of the landowner and tenants, and Matthew 23, 1 through 36, which is a passage of the eight woes against the Pharisees. This is essentially the same message that Stephen gave to the council in Acts 7, 51 through 53. Israel continued in their hardness of heart, which is what ultimately led to Paul's arrest and multiple imprisonments, and is why so few Jews turned to follow Jesus as Messiah. So why did this happen? What caused Israel to harden their hearts, and how can we avoid following in their footsteps? Two root causes that are in Stephen's accusation, but are even clearer in the same speech that Jesus gave in Matthew 21 and 23, are resisting the Holy Spirit and selfishness. Resisting the Holy Spirit, in one of the simplest definitions, is ignoring what your conscience is speaking, although it's not limited to that. Uh, continuing to ignore the convictions of Scripture and the still small voice of conscience and the Holy Spirit will lead to a heart that no longer responds to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The heart becomes hard and then is capable of committing any sin, which is Paul, it's what Paul speaks of in Romans chapters 1 through 3. Yet as dangerous as resisting the Holy Spirit is, it is not the most dangerous root cause of heart hardness. Selfishness is. It is the original sin committed by Satan against God and is what caused Adam and Eve to trust their own judgment instead of trusting God's commands. When Jesus confronts the Pharisees in Matthew 21 and chapter 23, he confronts the selfish, their selfishness. In 21:38, he says, But when the fine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And in Matthew 23, 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. They wanted to look like they were following God for the honor of it. It was selfish motives and pride that motivated them instead of God's way of humility. And when confronted, their true face was revealed. They killed Jesus and Stephen because they exposed these things. With all this information about Israel, God's chosen people, continually hardening, hardening their hearts, how can we avoid following their example? The book of Hebrews gives us much insight into this, for it was written with this in mind. I would encourage you to read the whole book, especially chapters 3, 4, 10, 11, and 12. For more on this subject, but I will close this part with Hebrews 3.15. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And further on in chapter 3, it talks about them hardening their hearts through unbelief. Uh, so stay humble. Fight to believe God for what he has promised in Scripture to all who believe. Don't exalt yourself. 
Endure the trials well with faith and humility, just like Abraham, Moses, and Joseph did. And it's why Stephen uses them as examples against the hard hearts of the religious leaders. You can read about Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 through 25 and Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 19. He left all that he knew behind, allowed his nephew Lot to take a better portion when they had to divide their possessions. He sent Hagar and Ishmael away, even though he still loved them deeply. And he was willing to sacrifice the promise that God had given him through Isaac and through, and through the promise of all of his descendants. And he went through with the sacrifice until God stopped him. You can read about Joseph in Genesis chapters 37, chapters 39 through 50, and Hebrews eleven twenty-two. He had one of the hardest trials of anyone in Scripture. He was hated by his brothers for having favor and telling the truth about them to their father. Then he was sold by his brothers into slavery. And after doing well as a slave, he was severely tempted and then falsely accused by his master's wife, then thrown in prison. And while he was in prison, he was forgotten by his friend who was let out. But after he was out of prison, he was elevated to power over those who had harmed him. He had all authority to bring justice to them, but he extended mercy instead. This was the greatest trial, to have the power to bring justice and all authority to bring justice, but leaving it in God's hands. In Psalm 105, 17 through 19, it says this, God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. God tested him again and again until he could trust Joseph to walk in humility and respond well to those who'd hurt him. And because of this, he became God's deliverance for his people. You can read about Moses in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then Hebrews eleven twenty three through 29. He was raised up as a prince in Egypt, and he had some of the best education in the world. Then when he went to deliver his people, he was rejected by them. He spent the next 40 years in the desert watching sheep before, God called, calling, before God's calling as a deliverer came again. Moses entered his calling as a deliverer at 80 years old. Uh, and he entered his calling to a people that re- they continued to rebel, yet he remained humble. In fact, Numbers 12.3 says he was the most humble man that ever walked. Um, these three and countless others of God's servants give us examples of what it looks like to follow God and how suffering and trials are actually normal for those who God desires to use in great ways which leads us to Stephen, who suffered death and some implications from his life and the lives of other martyrs who stood for the gospel and for truth. Jim Elliott, a modern missionary who was martyred in 1956 in South America, wrote this in his journal seven years before his death. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain to gain that which he cannot lose. Those of us who have went through ADS and have read Money, Possessions, and Eternity know that this is true of our physical possessions, but this is also true of our very lives. 
Every one of us will die. And no one is a fool for giving his life, which will one be taken away anyway, for the eternal rewards of glory that is standing for the gospel, both for our personal heavenly rewards, but also each and every deed we do for Jesus will enhance and magnify his beauty also. John preached on Stephen's life last week of his godly character, his courage and wisdom, and his countenance. If you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's sermon, please go and listen to it online. It ties in so well with this week and is a much more thorough examination of Stephen's life. One aspect about his death that is very remarkable is that Jesus is standing. No other place in all of Scripture is Jesus ever standing at the throne. He's always seated at the throne at the right hand of the Father. This one time when Stephen has testified about him unto death, Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, rises from his throne. And accounts of martyrs throughout history testify to a special they testify to a special presence in the moment that allows them to stay true to Jesus until the end, something that has been referred to as martyr's grace. This is what allows Stephen to pray for those killing him, as well as so many others throughout history that were killed for the witness to Jesus and the witness to the gospel. This, along with what Jesus promised to believers regarding persecution, is also what allows us as believers to be able to face the possibility of death, especially an untimely death for what we believe, with confidence and peace. So now we will look at some of these promises. And Scripture is full of promises. There's a whole bunch more that I'm not going into on suffering that you can do on your own time. But um, 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who, live, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. John fifteen eighteen through sixteen four. These are the highlights of this passage. Uh, the world hates us because it hates Jesus. We are not greater than our master. He is sending the helper to us to testify and be a witness. He is telling us about the hard things and persecution before it happens so that we may not stumble when it comes. A time is coming when people who kill you... A time is coming when people who kill you think that they are doing so for God. Uh, In John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus gives some very heavy promises, but in the midst of it are promises for comfort and for his presence and the Holy Spirit as our helper. We are not to give in to fear and become anxious about the evil that may, be, that may befall us, we're actually called to live in complete peace and rest in Jesus as the true king and to remember that this world is not our home. Our real life that will last for eternity, it has already begun as believers, but is now only a shadow of what it will be. And only on the other side of death do we get to experience complete, unhindered life to the fullest in the presence of God. Finally, I wanted to wrap up with a little bit more about martyrs. 
The word that we get the English word martyr from is Greek martyrio, which means to bear witness or to testify. Most, time, most of the times witness or testify is used in the New Testament, martyrio is a dr- or a der- derivative of the word is used. So in Acts 1.8, like when we will be witnesses, it uses this word that we get the word martyr from. Um, like any other time you see it, that's the same root word. Jesus says in John 12.24 that unless a grain of the wheat falls to the earth and, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For us to take the gospel to the unreached places on the earth requires us to die. First to self, but possibly also to physically die. And this has been somewhat normal throughout history as the gospel goes forth into the cultures that have never heard. Ten out of the eleven disciples and Paul were all killed for following Jesus, as well as countless church fathers. And the only reason they didn't kill John was because God had miraculously kept him alive through things that should have killed anybody. Those that were first into the barbarian lands in Europe were often killed, as were those who also took the gospel into Asia and South America and the Pacific Islands. We have a Bible in English today because several people put their, li- several people put their lives in God's hands and were killed by the religious people for translating it into the language of the common person. Our brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East face death right now for following Jesus, as do some of the people we even met in Detroit last fall. The people groups who have yet to hear of God, who have yet to hear of the God that loves them and died to save them, are still hostile towards this message. They don't want us to come. And yet in Romans ten fourteen through 15, it motivates us to go. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him and whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring news of good things. We must go. The gospel and the Holy Spirit compel us. And we have Jesus' word that there is a set number of those who will die for the witness. And we can trust that not one more of God's servants will die than is needed for God's glory to be magnified to the greatest and for the gospel to be spread to the fullest extent. Revelation 6, 9 through 11 says that when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of their testimony, which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to them a white robe, And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been. 
would be completed also. Those who die for their witness to Jesus do not die in vain. And God does not wait to judge the earth in vain. There is a purpose, even if we cannot comprehend it this side of heaven. Some more resources and books to help encourage your faith in this area are the books Jesus Freaks and Fox's Fox's Book of Martyrs. They give stories about martyrs and how they died well. However, to die is relatively easy. To live every day for the rest of our lives as dead to ourselves and alive to Christ and not become hard-hearted is much, much more difficult and is why we need Jesus as our example. And so we'll end with Philippians 2, or Philippians 1, 18b through 2.18 and then respond. And I guess the worship team can come up now. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the, in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share with my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Yeah, let's respond to God.